Okay, and we have the pleasure now of hearing from Mr. Curtis Whiteley, and his message is entitled, A Sure Foundation. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful Sabbath day. As uh, was pointed out by Sean, my title today is a sure foundation. And I'd like to just start out with a quick question. You can just think to this question yourself. Ask it to yourself. What or who has your faith? Who or what do you trust in for your security, for your fulfillment, or for your happiness? Now you might be thinking, well, I'm here, right? Obviously, we put our faith in God. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We're proclaiming his word. But you would probably agree with me as we live on this earth as human beings that there is a tendency, I guess you would say, human nature that is, for us to seek fulfillment in a variety of ways. So security-wise, many people, sometimes you can see them, looking to their security in government. We see this all the time, just recently, right? I mean, we have elections, we have talking heads and people, and maybe we've even been guilty of just this person that we think is elected into whatever political position that everything is going to be good. Money, jobs. It's another area that people put their security in. They, they put their faith in, and David had mentioned the early part of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, talking about you can't serve God and mammon, money, riches, right? Many people do put their trust, though, in material things. Jobs for financial security. And unfortunately, we know that this is faulty because jobs can easily be lost. The economy is... David talked about how, you know, and, and, and bringing out those scriptures that God knows the things that we're in need of. But when we put ourselves in those positions where that's where our faith is, we know we're very vulnerable. Physical protection. We live in a world full of violence, of course. Physical protection. People are constantly, we know, are committing acts of violence. They steal, they murder, they bring harm to, to someone. And as a result, people have to take measures to protect themselves. Sometimes they take measures in the form of a house alarm, a car alarm, and maybe even getting some sort of personal protection device, such as a gun. Happiness and fulfillment. Where do people put their happiness and fulfillment? Many different things that we could talk about. But again, it goes back to some of those same things that we talked about with security. Materialism, money. Many people use physical possessions to bring about happiness and fulfillment in their lives, whether it be through belonging to a certain group, a certain prestigious club, a title that they have, an expensive car, a nice house. Some people look at that fame, fortune, money, riches as the foundation for their happiness and fulfillment. And of course, unfortunately, we see this in substances as well whether it be alcohol or drugs or even food, 
people sometimes get themselves so wrapped up in these things that that's what they look to to bring themselves fulfillment and happiness. And lastly, although this isn't an exhaustive list, people, we as humans, we can even use other people in our lives to bring us fulfillment. Whether it be a you know, family member, whether it be a spouse, and all of those things are good, and God ordained those things as far as God wants us to have people in our lives, and he puts people in our lives, but when they are the foundation, we of course are putting ourselves in a vulnerable spot. Even sports, this is one of the things I was thinking about. We can get wrapped up in sports teams for fulfillment and our happiness. I'll have to admit that I'm one of those that's kind of been guilty of that. And it's interesting because people take notice of this. I'm a huge Oklahoma Sooner football fan. And they didn't have the greatest of years this year. And what I realized this year, this is the worst year they've had since 1998, is I didn't realize just how much people noticed how crazy I got about my Oklahoma Sooners until I started having people text me and call me saying, after this six and six year that they have, are you doing okay this, this fall? <laughs> and it made me realize, people see these things. And as I mentioned, some of these things are okay. It's, it's okay, of course, God puts family and people in our lives, and it's okay to, you know, indulge in some entertainment and, of course, basic protective measures. But they all have one thing in common. They're temporary. They don't last they can't bring us the ultimate security, the ultimate happiness, or the ultimate fulfillment. If we build our life on them as our foundation, and we are building not a sure foundation, but a faulty one. And so today, I want to look at a quick parable of Jesus. It's at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And I want to just touch on this, and I want to look at three things today. And just to give us some context of where we're going, uh, David had already kind of mentioned some of the things, some of these sayings, some of these teachings in Matthew the 6th chapter, because 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's gospel is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I'm kind of notorious to going here because there's so many teachings that Jesus speaks on, and he's at the, in chapter 7, he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, and he's been speaking to people about Many things, and a lot of these things he's talking to them about, is these long-held beliefs that people had and how there was some misconceptions on some of the truths of God's word, especially in light of how the traditions of the day had blurred the true intents of God's word and his law. So Jesus is speaking in pairs. If you start in Matthew, the seventh chapter, Starting in verse 13, we're not going to go there, but we're going to go all the way uh, to verse 24. But Jesus speaks about these two ways of life, these two gates, the narrow gate and the wide gate. Two types of prophets and teachings, the false prophets and the false teachings and the true. And in verse 24, we see Jesus present this short little parable, if you could call it a parable. It's included among uh, the parables. The two foundations, the two builders, the strong and the weak. So let's go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, and pick it up in verse 24. 
In verse 24, we read Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, the very end of this sermon, he's up on this hill, this mount. It's not called the Sermon on the Mount in the actual New Testament. That's what we call it, because he's up on a mount. He's speaking to people. His disciples are probably there and many others. He says, whoever hears these sayings of mine, these sayings he just got done teaching, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so my main theme today is very simple. Build on the foundation of Jesus. If we want to, and it really ties into what David said today, if we want to have a recipe for a successful life, as David touched upon, if we want to have a sure foundation, as the title of this message is, we will build our foundation in all aspects of our life on the foundation of Jesus. And there's three reasons that we see that Jesus gives us why we need to build the foundation on him. Number one, because his foundation is sure. He is firm. He is the rock. We need to notice one of the key parts that Jesus says here is that he doesn't say that a wise man builds his foundation on a rock, but the rock. And the Bible has many references to this idea of God being likened to not a rock, but the rock. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. And I just want to read a few of these from the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, verse 3 and 4, we read, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice and a, a God of truth and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. We can go to Psalm 18, another one I wanted to just bring out. Verses 1 and 2. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. For my God, my strength, and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And one more I just wanted to bring out. Psalm 144, verse 1. Blessed be the Lord, my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And so going back to that opening question, where do you put your faith? Where do you put your faith for your security, for your happiness, for, for your fulfillment? Do we put it on the rock? Do we put our faith, our lives on the rock? We see this also in the New Testament later by the Apostle Paul. He talks about Jesus being this rock. We read through the Old Testament, of course, God being the rock. And in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, I just want to read this. We've read this many times. It says, For it, Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, 
all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed him, followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And I'm going to stop it right there because we know the history of Israel. They had this opportunity before them and they decided not to trust in that rock. And we can go back to the story of whenever Moses went up on the mountain as alluded to here in 1 Corinthians by Paul. Some of them decided because of a lack of faith to do things, of course, that you know, wasn't indicative of someone who was following through of keeping their faith in, in God. And, of course, Paul brings that out. When we look at this, some wanted the life of familiarity to go back to Egypt. And we read this in those passages. And some, of course, were just outright rebellious. They were self-reliant. And Paul tells us this story has become an example for us that we do not stumble like them. Let's go to John, the first chapter, real quick. One of the great privileges that the, Jesus, the Jews of Jesus' day experienced was that they got to, to live at a time where they saw the glory of God come in the flesh. And I spoke on this at the Feast of Tabernacles a little bit uh, in some previous messages this, this past year. But unfortunately, as we read the story, the majority of them did not recognize it because they had instead been building another foundation. They've been building a foundation based upon interpreting the scriptures based upon the religious leaders and their interpretations. And so when we read John the first chapter, we see this wonderful introduction to how this came to be, how, you know, this Jesus, this human become flesh, came into our existence. And we've read this so many times we know that it says in the beginning, verse 1 of John 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines not in the darkness, and the, darkness did not, and the, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, when we skip down to verse 14 of this gospel, we read something very special. And I brought this out recently in another message, as I just mentioned. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the reason I bring this out is that we go back to Israel during their times, Whenever they lived, when they gazed upon, I guess you would call it the glory of God, we know that they did so from the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. We know that the pillar of cloud followed them by day and the, 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 the fire by night. 
And we know that there's traditionally been ascribed this idea called the Shekinah glory. And we know that in this story, that that Shekinah glory was above that tabernacle, especially when Moses would go to the tent of meeting and those individuals from afar off would see God's glory over the tabernacle. But they would see it from afar off. But now here in John's gospel, we've been shown that Jesus, those Jews living at a time where God's glory is not afar off, it's not at the, tab or the temple alone, but it's now through this individual, this word, this logos made flesh. And as the, 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 the Greek literally says that he pitched his tent among us. But unfortunately, this glory was not recognized by the majority of Jesus' own countrymen. But one of the lessons, and I think that this is where people get off track, especially when they talk about the New Testament and they see that the Jews of Jesus' day rejected Jesus. And they think that this is somehow a Jewish problem, that it was just Jews who rejected Jesus, but rather they don't recognize that this in large part is kind of a human problem. This isn't a Jewish problem. And the reason I say that is because how many examples of in the early church, throughout church history, and even in our own tradition, do we sometimes use the traditions or men or leaders to be the basis for what we believe? You see, Jesus came on the scene and he didn't align with these religious leaders and these typical teachings that people heard, so they rejected him. He had a different interpretation of what people, many, not all of his interpretations were different, but many in key aspects than what people had always believed. And because of this, people rejected Jesus. And we even see this happen in the early church. We see that people start, instead of aligning themselves with God and focusing on God, they start interpreting God and his word through other people, and replace Jesus with other individuals. 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, we see this at the very beginning of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. He describes a situation where all these individuals were somehow like, you know, saluting themselves to a different individual. And we see that Paul would say, you know, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, I'm not, I didn't give Brian this scripture, I don't believe, but he says, some say, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas. And so I think that when we look at the scripture from 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, when Paul says that all of these things were written down for our admonition as examples, so we don't follow after them, we have to also include passages like this and stories from our own history where instead of looking to Jesus and God the Father and them alone as the foundation we start creeping off and, of course, and start putting our foundation, even subconsciously, I think. Not us, always. I'm not saying that that's what we're doing right now. I'm saying that in, 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 in the grand scheme of what we have seen from church history, early church history like 1 Corinthians, church history in the Reformation age, of course, all the way down to our own church history. And we know we have seen this just recent history. And when I mean recent, just in the last 50 years. Even our own church tradition has fallen 
in times or at certain points and with certain groups into this own trap of individuals who get so wrapped up in the church congregation that they belong to, the church organization that they belong to, the leader that they, you know, believe in or that they put their faith in, even though they might not verbalize it like that, their actions. And they lay themselves a foundation on man or on men instead of the rock, that is, Jesus Christ. Anytime we make our foundation after any other than Jesus Christ, that rock, we lay a faulty foundation made out of sand, as Jesus says. And I don't think it just has to be limited to aspects of life, such as, is your foundation in this church organization or this congregation or things like that? I think, of course, it goes even further. Is our rock in our mind, is our foundation on those other things in life, those distractions of life, those things that we think brings us happiness and fulfillment. My second reason that we have to make sure that we lay a sure foundation and that foundation on Christ is because his judgment is sure. The day of the Lord is coming. And we all agree with this. We know, and this is going to go towards what Jesus is saying, there's judgment in his words. There is a warning of judgment in his words. 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verses 9 through 11 says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to, to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, and that goes back to kind of what David had said about the fear of the Lord, the reverence, the respect. Therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciousness. And the background of what Jesus says here in chapter 7 of Matthew's gospel that we're looking at today is concerned with God's judgment. And right before this parable of the two foundations, the two builders, we see these other short parables where Jesus says that many in the day, in the future, on that judgment day will come to us and say, Lord, Lord, and he's speaking of that judgment day, we did these things, we spoke these things, but they really weren't following after Christ. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is truly having Jesus Christ, the true Lord, over their life. James, the first chapter, verse 22 and 25, also speaks of this. Because, see, Jesus, he covers it all. At the very beginning, before the foundation, uh, the, the two builders parable that we're looking at today, Jesus talks about people who say, but don't do. But this parable that we're looking at today Jesus is talking about those who hear but don't do because he wants both. There are those who hear Jesus' words and God's words and choose not to follow after them. And there's those who hear Jesus' words and they say they're doing Jesus' words, but they as well do not follow after them. But we know James, the 22nd chapter, talks about this double-minded, those who are hearers only getting at what Jesus says here in this parable that we're looking at, but not doers. 
Now, when we look at this parable, it's, it's, it's very basic. And I'm not much of a construction person. I, I do have a little experience in my teenage years. Uh, many of you know Tommy uh, McMurray, who is my, my uncle. He has since passed uh, several years ago, but Jeanette McMurray is still alive. And uh, Shane and, and Tom, who both have passed away, which was their sons. And then we have, of course, Chantel Kolb. Uh, and Ron Cole and Chantel's the daughter of uh, Tommy McMurray. But I, my extent of uh, construction experience was with him. And when I was 15 years old, I helped him uh, build the foundation of his house. And it took almost the entire summer because he wanted to make sure it was done right. And he just had me and himself. And I can tell you, having me as a helper wasn't much. I didn't really know much. I was really just the muscle. Uh, and I was 15 and a half years old and eventually turned 16. I can tell you this individual who was probably well into his 60s put me to shame. Uh, I did all these things. I played sports and did all this conditioning. And he'd out there, you know, he would last me times three of what I could do out there. But that's the extent of what I know. And I know that, you know, when it comes to the foundation of a house, I know you pour the footing, you get everything lined up. But one of the things that is true, and, you know, I've, of course, you know, I've, I live in a neighborhood that's uh, just as of maybe half a year ago, the last house was built. So if you've ever lived in a neighborhood where they're still building houses, you probably drive by, you know, new construction uh, several times. And I've lived there 10 years, so I've seen probably uh, at least half of the neighborhood be built. So I've seen many different houses go up. Now, here's the thing. I can't tell which one's a good foundation and which one is, isn't. From the outside, and, and, and I'm not an expert, but I, they all look the same to me. So if one of them had a faulty foundation and the other one was on a good foundation, me and my novice eyes of, of construction, I wouldn't know exactly what you would see. And so the interesting thing of what Jesus is bringing out is that these two individuals, the wise man and the foolish man, these two builders, you're not immediately going to know which one's wise and which one's foolish unless you're very, very uh, in the know about how construction works and things like that. It's not until, of course, that that house, that structure, starts to feel the elements of the weather, the elements of you know, natural disasters, wind, possible floods, maybe an earthquake. It's not until then that it's revealed whether or not that foundation that was laid was truly on the rock. And we can write, maybe think about that in our life sometimes. Maybe people we know who say the right things, who appear to maybe do the right things, but we truly don't know if they've really built the foundation on the rock the foundation of their life. Of course, God knows, and of course, we can kind of, to some degree, by their fruits, as Jesus also says in other places, no. But we can't be for sure. Luke, the 8th chapter, verse 17 says, For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. So we have to ask this question, though, in talking about this building metaphor that Jesus brings out in this parable. And that is, why would anyone 
want to build anything on a faulty or vulnerable foundation. Why would anyone want to do that? Well, if we took the metaphor of builders today, I can imagine maybe one of the motivations behind wanting to not build the foundation real well is because maybe they're cutting corners. Maybe they're not wanting to spend as much money. Maybe they're, you know, uh, you know, they're trying to go the route that's easier, right? Maybe that's the motivation. And we would probably all agree that, especially if you have experience in maybe building a house or something like that, that, you know, maybe you've had a builder who tried to cut corners on the foundation of other, maybe other areas as well. I think that there's, a, there's something to be said there in that metaphor that Jesus gives and possibly the motivation behind why maybe a builder would want to build something on more vulnerable foundation in our life that we can think of of why people build things on an easier foundation. Let's just think about that. The geographical area that Jesus was in was not a very easy area to build a house on that was on a sure foundation. You could build it on the sand, which was nice and flat. But as Jesus said, that would be basically be taking the easy way out. That would be taking the easy way out. In the parallel version of this parable in Luke's gospel, Jesus says in Luke 6, 48, he said, talking about the wise man, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Dug deep. If there's one other thing I learned from any construction or any manual labor was that digging in earth has got to be one of the most difficult things that you can do. It is difficult. Anyone ever dug a ditch before? Not easy, right? Not easy at all. The terrain of this life, just like earth, is difficult. It's not easy. It takes effort. Jesus is saying, those who dig deep, have we dug deep to lay the foundation on the rock that is Jesus? It's not easy because this world, we know, is out of step with what this word right here says. This world is opposed to the principles of this, this book, these 66 books that we know as the Bible. It's difficult because we know that people, they think we're foolish following after these things, following after Jesus, that guy that lived 2,000 years ago, in their minds, is foolishness. It's an antiquated idea in their minds. It's old-fashioned. It's out of touch with our times. And we even know that we have entered into a realm where people even call this evil and wrong. It's difficult. It's difficult. It takes truly digging deep, seeking God, to be able to build on the foundation that is Jesus. Like a quality builder, though, there's one thing that a quality builder who decides to build their building, their structure, on a good foundation. And they do it 
by anticipating at the very beginning of their construction what is needed in order to build their structure in a way that will be able to withstand the anticipated weight, weather, and resistance that the building may be subject, subject to. And in the same way, Jesus is telling us that the wise, those who don't just hear his words but put them into practice, build on the foundation of the rock himself and his words and his true teachings to withstand the things that life may bring. And we just heard a prayer request list today and we know life brings things that are uncertain. This life, it's not certain what will happen. The next life and the promises that we've been given by God, they are certain. We have a hope for them. But this life brings windstorms. It brings rain. It brings hell. It brings earthquakes. All of those things that we talked about at the very beginning can be taken away just like that. And Jesus is saying the wise build on a house, build their house on a foundation of me, the rock, and my true words because they know, they are anticipating the things that may come in this life and the judgment that we will have to, you know, uh, face God with at some day on whether or not our foundation truly was on the one on the rock. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, and I'm going to more scriptures than I'm typically do in my messages. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. I want to read a few passages here. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. Verse 9 says this. Paul says this, and it's interesting because, you know, we just mentioned and looked, and I, I alluded to Paul in the very early chapters, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. He's having to deal with these individuals who you know, are claiming, well, I follow this person or I follow that. You know, I, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. And he says this, he says in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. You are God's building. And we know that Christ is the foundation of that building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, the day of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so there is a judgment coming, of course. There's a judgment day. And we don't know when that day of the Lord is. But one of the things that we can be sure of is that even if we don't live into the, the end times as we think about it, it's still possible and likely. If there's anything living this life and on this earth tells you, it's likely you're going to face some fire. And that fire might not be the day of the Lord and the persecution, things like that, but it might just be natural elements of being a human being. 
being in this carnal, faulty state that we're in. Because even though we have put on Christ, we still have this old man. We're still subject to the things that humanity is subject to. Diseases, loss, financial loss, loss of health, things like that, and of course, the loss of our life. My third reason that we need to make sure that we build our foundation on the rock is because he, Jesus, has the authority. Verses 28 and 29 of Matthew 7. We see Jesus at the end of this parable. Or we see he doesn't do this, but this is what is told to us by Matthew. In response to his parables, Jesus garners this response by those individuals that had heard him talking and teaching. He says in verse 28, Matthew's speaking now, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so Jesus, he taught differently than what people were used to. Because if you go back and you kind of read, well, what does this mean? What were so surprising of what Jesus did? Well, apparently during this period of time, People didn't teach like this. They usually would just quote people who were known religious leaders or like maybe a prominent religious figure or a rabbi or something like that. Jesus didn't do that. His authority was on himself and who he claimed his father was. And of course, that's almighty God. And so people were astonished at this. They were very surprised because so often they were literally they weren't reliant on themselves to be able to learn what the scriptures had to say. They had to rely on the religious leaders. Because large part of people, the common people, they weren't literate. And you'd have to go to the synagogue to read a scroll or have a scroll read to you. And oftentimes these were read by religious leaders to other individuals. And they would have to rely on them to interpret it for them. We see this again in the early, or not the early, but in the Renaissance period, right before the Protestant Reformation, the way that people would have to rely, you know, during the Roman Catholic Church when it was, um, you know, pretty much the only church of all of Europe except for, you know, the Greek Eastern Orthodox Church in, in the East. You had individuals, they weren't literate, and the Bible was not in their vernacular. That's their common language. How would they know about the stories of the Bible? Through the priest. Through the priest that would teach them and would interpret the Bible for them. Desiderius Erasmus, which was a, you know, a Dutch humanist thinker in the Renaissance period, kind of during this period of time that the Protestant Reformation, which happened in the 1500s, he's quoted as saying that the chief strength of the church at that time laid in the hands of the ignorance of the people. Because you had to have the word of God interpreted through a priest. In other words, people's ignorance, not because they were dumb, not because they were stupid, but because they were kept in the dark. And then eventually people like Martin Luther, as well as others, uh, you know, William Tyndale, they came out and they started the Protestant Reformation by promoting the idea of the Bible being in those in the in the my, or in the the language of the people's common language, their vernacular language, so they could read it for themselves, and that's what we have today. 
We've been blessed to live in an era where we actually have personal Bibles that have been written in our language at a time where literacy, being able to read and write, is a high percentage. And we can read this word, and we can learn what it says, and we can be like the Bereans of Acts, the 17th chapter, who searched the scriptures to see whether these things are so, whether they're true. And going back to Jesus, we even know that when we read Jesus' words in Matthew 5, and we read him teaching and preaching on his own authority, we also have the benefit of knowing the rest of the story, don't we? We know what happened. We know that Jesus is vindicated and him being the ultimate authority because we see the rest of the story about how after he teaches these things, not only does he say these things, but we see examples of him living these principles that he's preaching. And not only that, we see him doing it to the point of him being arrested, to him being crucified, and him being raised from the dead. So we see the story as it is, and we see that all of those things that Jesus taught are vindicated by him doing and practicing what he preached, but also by him dying and being raised from the dead, which gives us no other conclusion other than this guy who was dead and now is alive must have the blessing of God the Father. He truly must be who he says he was. I want to read one last passage in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Well, I say that, it's not the last passage. I actually would like to close with another parable. But Matthew, the 28th chapter, we read the very end of Matthew's Gospel. The teachings happen, the claims of Jesus, and then the proof through his actions, him dying and being rose from the grave, we read this. Then the 11 and verse 16. Verse 16. I think I gave. I think I gave Brian. I'll just read verse 16 for you, Brian. Don't worry about it. I gave him verse 18. Starting in 18. It says in verse 16, right before 18, of course. It says, Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And verse 17 says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted, or some doubted. Verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Amen. Jesus has been given the authority. His words of him being the true rock, the sure foundations, were ultimately, as we see here in Matthew's gospel at the very end, vindicated. As I mentioned, as I close, I'd like to read another parable, but I'd also like to end kind of like I began with a question. A personal question for all of us to ask ourselves. And it may be simple, but I think it's needed in order to dig deep about what Jesus has to say. And that is, what 
type of builder are we? How have we built our lives and on what foundation? Is, is it on the sure foundation, the rock of Christ? And we, do we prove this by not just hearing, but by doing? In Matthew, the 25th chapter, Jesus gives us this other parable. And it's a parable that is a little different, of course, in the parable that we read, but it gets at the same things. Those who are hearers and sayers versus those who are doers. It's right before he was arrested and then to be tried and crucified, and it's found in Matthew, the 25th chapter, verse 31. Verse 31 of Matthew 25 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did you, we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did, we see you a when did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in a prison and come to you? And the king answered, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the reason I bring that out is because Jesus, it doesn't just have to be about these elements. He's speaking of those who hear only versus do, or say only versus do. Let us, as we strive to build our foundation on the sure foundation of the rock, that we are being doers of the word and proving that truly our foundation is built on that rock.